Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're talking to Moose Mutlow, who has been working in the legendary Yosemite Search and Rescue uh, for, gosh, 20 years. He has had some unbelievable experiences, as you can imagine, not working, not only working in Yosemite, but all over the country and the world doing search and rescue and specifically dealing with water, like white water, rapids and stuff like that, but also as a family liaison. Uh, as you'll hear, it is a hard job because you are the person communicating the details with the families and there's a lot of times that it's news that no one wants to hear. So just so you know, a little bit of a trigger warning here. We will be talking about concepts like suicide uh, and death and human remains even. So, you know, if any of that is upsetting to you and, and also just, you know, emotional trauma, stuff like that. So if anything like that is something you don't want to start your week off uh, with, I totally understand. But it is a necessary thing that exists for people like us to enjoy the outdoors. You know, there have been plenty of times that I've seen search and rescue blow past me on a trail or a helicopter fly overhead, literally saving someone's life. Um, for us to enjoy these wild places, there and a lot of times has to be some sort of service like this. So we can't thank folks like Moose and his teams enough for what they do. It has saved uh, and found just countless lives. But this is a pretty unique story for us, so I'm excited to get into it. So let's go ahead and jump in. Moose is an awesome storyteller. And by the way, Moose has written a couple books about his experiences, uh, his lessons learned, and stories from Search and Rescue. So if you're interested, check that out in the show notes. All right, let's jump in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, uh, I'm excited to talk to Moose Butlow. Moose, welcome to the show. Mason, thank you very much for having me along for the ride. Yes, Moose, uh, quick backstory. I, uh, I, I, I've never been involved with, with Yosar, but I used to live in Yosemite Valley, met and listened to John Dill's talk many times. Um, always impressed with what y'all did. Tons of action. The, the, for the time I lived there back in 2014. And uh, yeah, you guys were, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was world-class search and rescue. And, and you're a huge part of that. It's pretty exciting to talk to you. Yeah. I, well, I think huge is a, is an interesting word. <laughs> I, it's like search and rescue is, is uh, you're the sum of all the parts. And so at any given time, there's somebody dangling under a helicopter, but there's a ton of people trying to figure out how to safely refuel the helicopter at the same time. So it's it's a high-functioning team. And John Dill, who you talked about, is that legend who the closer you are to the sport, the, the, the more you're involved with climbing, the more you understand John's influence in rescue. And I, I think uh, that's the, the beauty of rescue is for the most part, people are faceless. You're all working as a unified team for a common goal to have an outcome that everybody wants, which is saving somebody. And those are exactly the people I love to talk to and listen to because, you know, they're not pushed. I, I know you've got a book and whatnot, but you, you're, you seem like the type of person, the more you talk to, the more you're going to discover and like, wow, this is, 
this is this is amazing what you do, and and it's something that we don't often think about. But um, you also got to be the only moose in Yosemite Valley. Actually, there's like there's like two or three of them. It turns out there's really? a little bit of confusion out there. There aren't many that are that are a formerly skinny Brit though. Like <laughs> okay, yeah, that definitely <laughs> that is sets you apart. Sets me apart a little bit. Yeah. Sets you apart a little bit more. And and I always I usually ask this first. I forgot this this time. Where are you coming from today? Where's home for you? I'm just, a, I'm an hour outside of Yosemite. I'm in Mariposa, which is one of the gateway towns that has its economy so tightly linked into Yosemite National Park. Mm, mm, absolutely. I've been through Mariposa many, many times. Love the Sierras. Love Yosemite. Favorite place in the world. Thank thank goodness for, for folks like y'all. So, Tell me, I'm, I know you've told probably these stories a thousand times, but give us the rundown of like, how did you get into search and rescue? Because you, I've heard you mention things like, I, you don't like heights. You don't like being exposed <laughs> on mountains. You don't like a lot of the things that you would associate with Yosar. How did you get into it? I, I, came from, I come from a background of being an outdoor guide and instructor in lots of different countries. And just getting a lot of outdoor experience through expeditions and just being out there, you end up in situations where you end up perhaps being the first line of, of help. So in the lake, when I worked in the Lake District, which is in the Northwest of England, people would come in the pub and, and say, Oh, we've got somebody at the trail who needs a hand down. And you would go out as a guide and help somebody down the trail. We rescued a dog one time because it was too tired to walk down the trail. Um, and then over time and different locations, you build enough into your resume that you become credible in certain areas. And so by the time I got to Yosemite, I have a, a, a pretty good resume in swift water rescue and, and then within communication skills, working with uh, families of people who went searching for or who have died. And so you end up finding your niche. And so I came into it. Uh, by being in Yosemite and then having high availability and being prepared to do stuff like stuff, sleeping bags and fold ropes at the end of a mission, rather than necessarily being on the hasty team, going up and getting vitals on somebody having a cardiac on the trail. You have to do your time in the background before you, you get into the inner workings of the team. Was it just happenstance from being a guide? Cause a lot of people get into the outdoors or get into an adventure and they're like, Oh, you know, I want to be, you know, a guide very, very frequently or uh, a professional athlete. I work with a lot of pro athletes that are, you know, maybe trail runners or whatnot. Uh, wh when did your mind shift towards, I, I want to help people uh, do this? Because that's not, that's not the way a lot of people end up thinking about a career in the outdoors. So I, I'd worked for a group called Outward Bound uh, internationally. And by the time I got to working for the North Carolina Outward Bound School, we were actually a mountain rescue unit on call for the local Burke County rescue. And we would go out on technical rescues and, and help back them up with the litter carryouts. Also with prison crews, we would work, which is always exciting. <laughs> um, and so it was, you know, an undercurrent of Outward Bound is service, is the idea of reaching beyond yourself to make, to, to help other people. And so it tied in perfectly with that service ethic. And it, I was never that fixed on summits or big rivers or I, I was fixed on the experience in that moment. And so doing a bunch of 14ers, if that's your bag, great. It wasn't for me. I, I was prepared to 
put that on hold a little bit if somebody was having a problem somewhere else on the slope and go and help. That's that's more the summit is the summit of, of being uh, of being human is not is not gaining that peak. The summit is giving of yourself to another person when they're in a moment of need. Mm. And and what eventually led you to Yosemite? Kind of the you tell me if I'm wrong. The pinnacle of this world in a lot of ways, maybe here in the states, or at least one of the busiest. Well, I mean, my job, I, I, I work, my primary job is working in environmental education with a, a provider called Nature Bridge. And I got the opportunity to come to Yosemite as an education director within, within their field science program. And then became a community member for Yosar because my office is in the valley right next to the Sarkash. And I was young and sing- younger and single and... I would be in the valley a lot. So when the, 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 the tone went out for rescue, I could get to the cache pretty quickly and it could probably be picked up on an 80 higher. And then it's just exciting. But I get excited about all parts of the search and rescue. Like I get excited about the energy and search and rescue cache when you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're putting stuff up on the dry erase board. As, as much as charging off up the trail or sitting down with the family and doing an interview about where somebody might be, all of those pieces I find exciting because you're, it's this uh, mystery. You're, you've got this, a little bit of information and as you go deeper into it, into the adventure of it, you get more and more information and then you end up with this mathematical problem you have to solve. You're inheriting somebody else's chaos but it comes like a math story problem because you've got to get from A to B with X amount of resources. And everybody's focused in that moment on solving it. <laughs> How, where else do we find in the world that there may be some debate about, are we going to go left or right? We're going to go up and down on this particular boulder. But for the most part, you're all going in the same direction. You're totally unified. Hmm. You're, you're kind of like my son who, uh, when an ambulance drives by with its lights on, he he gets really excited too, and he'll start clapping. He's little, and uh, I'm like, "Oh, and that's sweet." You know, this person's having the worst day of their life. <laughs> My son's pretty excited about it. <laughs> well, i i had this I had this great experience uh, where we turned up for a river rescue, and it was summer and you know, the river in the valley, it kind of dries up and it's pool, it's oh, just yeah. big pools. And, and because of the way that we do response, you have to gear up. So we're, we're terribly over uh, protected in that moment with helmets and boots and wetsuits. And we have to swim the river and get this guy who's dislocated his shoulder, I think across the river. And it's not that difficult. And there's kids playing in the shallows and families are sitting around drinking beer. And this, we sort of pile out of the vehicle and we, we swim across the river to get this guy. And there's plenty of people watching and filming. And we realize that he's not a compliant patient. He's, he's definitely gone to a zone that he does not want to move. And we end up borrowing the family's uh, tiny kid raft. So they have this, this, this mermaid kid raft or something. And we swim that across and I dump him in and I swim him across the river inside this kid's raft because that was the thing we had to rescue him with. We put him in the ambulance. He's a lot happier because he starts getting painkillers. And we turn around to strip our gear off and the kids have taken the raft 
and they've gone to where we were and they were playing rescue in that moment. They were taking it in turns to be the rescuer and be the victim. And, and I reflect on that because the family may have video of that. They may have pictures of that. These kids may have memory of that. But they, they were playing a game about helping each other. And I, I, I love that. I, I think if we have that uh, somehow pushed into our DNA at the earliest age, it, we will make the world a better place. Another couple talks I was listening to, you talk so much about just, you know, it's not rocket science what you do. It, it's a lot like listening to people, having compassion, um, being relatively fit. But, it, it, you know, outside of the technical climate and, you know, being able to fly a helicopter, stuff like that, it, it, it's a lot of basic stuff that you're doing. It's just meeting people where they are and, and being someone who cares. It, it, it seems like it, it stems from those fundamental manners and ways to get along that kids are supposed to know. Yeah, I, I think you tr everybody wants to be treated with respect. If you treat a patient with respect and you try to open pathways to communication, they are going to put themselves in a better position to be treated and to manage their pain because they'll have confidence in you and they're going to give you more accurate information and it's, it's going to make your job easier. If you've got somebody who's a bit out of it because they've made a decision around a substance, you don't ratchet it up. You you de-escalate it, you, you bring it down, you get into a safer zone. And I think those all set you up to accomplish difficult tasks. There's a lot of fear. When you load somebody in a helicopter, their eyes get real big because they're fearful because they're in this machine that's designed to self-destruct and the pilot is trained to stop it from doing so. And you're putting this person in there and that they have to trust in that moment. And I think the people who are dangling below the helicopters, they come in with this calmness. They, they have this, they don't elevate their pulse. They bring their pulse down because it's already exciting. They don't need to add to it by sort of essentially yee-hawing it. And it, I, I think controlling the emotion in a genuine way is the thing that makes everything better for everybody. You've mentioned that you work... Uh with a lot of water, you're not necessarily up on the granite walls. And, and I remember John Dill having this picture he would share at, at, at his uh, presentation where it showed kids next to a river. And yeah. then the next image was the exact same picture, but instead of where the water of the river was, it was edited to look like a cliff uh, drop off. And he said the level of danger is exactly the same. Can you talk to us about like the danger of water and the things you've seen and maybe a few stories about about what you've done there in Yosemite in the river. So John has another great metaphor where he talks or analogy where he talks about you wouldn't play on the side of a highway with cars going by you at 80 miles an hour. You would step back. You'd yeah. be the other side of the safety rail. And that's the river. It's the river. Stuff happens incredibly quickly. And I think the river moves you away from safety to where the maximum flow is or where the hazards are, are nearingly. It just does it. And it happens in seconds and you have a moment to adjust to that. Because if you inhale water and you go vertical, uh, you're going to get your knees banged up. You may get your foot trapped and then you're going to be in that negative oxygen environment. And within less than 15 seconds, you're done. Water is so much more powerful than, than so many visitors understand. I used to say that people were like, unlucky or stupid and that was terribly judgmental 
And now I just think that people are disconnected with the reality of that environment. You see these rivers, you want to get close to them and touch them. That's predominantly the reason people have accidents here is they reach out to touch the water and they slip in. Or they get a little bit out on the edge and they're above something that they jumped in when they were a kid. They jumped into water, but they're jumping into white water, which is aerated water. So you actually sink below that white fluffy stuff. Your buoyancy is much lower in that foam pile. And you have no idea that it's going to be going at 20 miles an hour. It's faster than you can run along the shore. And that it's going to have the, the percussive effect of falling out of a car. You're going to be hitting rocks. And that, most of what I've dealt with historically in the park, I think two-thirds of the water missions I've been on are body recoverers. You're, you get a call and you have optimism in that moment. And then as you investigate it, you realize they're an hour up the trail and they're dead. They, if they were on a rock, you would have heard that they were a rock in the middle of the river. And so you have these sobering moments where a family wants the right outcome. You want the right outcome. You have more information because of your experience. And you know that this is going to have a negative. It's going to be negative. You're going you're gonna to be doing a search not a, and a recovery. You're not doing a rescue. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. One of the most formative things I did in my outdoor slash adventure career was to be a camp counselor. So a couple summers in college, I helped kids learn how to uh, to mountain bike, to climb, to, to, to paddle, you know, canoe, all kinds of stuff. And it was one of the coolest experiences and gave me a lifelong love of uh, sharing these sports with people. And it honestly directly led to me hosting this podcast. And why that excites me so much is because Avid for Adventure reached out to us and said, hey, we have hundreds of summer camp counseling jobs, uh, seasonal jobs all over the country, and we need your help filling them. So if you would like to spend your summer in the mountains teaching kids how to rock climb, mountain bike, hike, kayak, backpack, and everything else you can imagine uh, in places like California, Colorado, the, the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, be out in the mountains, be out in the woods, be out on the water. If that's how you want to spend your summer and you want to make some money and you want to have access to healthcare and you want to work at one of Outside Magazine's best places to work then you need to apply for one of these jobs with Avid for Adventure. All you got to do is go to avid4.com slash jobs. The application is only five minutes. And even if you don't think it's a good fit for you, I promise that you know somebody who could fill one of these hundreds of roles that we need to fill this year. Again, that's avid the number four dot com slash jobs. Fill out the five minute application and tell them you heard about it through Adventure Sports Podcast. Let's go have the best summer of your life. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You, you mentioned that happens so much. Rarely do you get to say someone survived in the river specifically. There's, there was a first time this happened for you. Did, did you find yourself dealing with it better than you expected? How, how did you, I don't know, inch your way into this family liaison role, especially with, with water and understanding that like, okay, maybe my emotions are geared in a way that can, can you handle this better than the rest of us or you just have been forced to? Uh, well, I, I come from a background of facilitation and counseling. Yeah. And you're British too. I'm sure that helps. 
Well, yeah, but we're a repressed nation. You know, we're a nation that, that the stiff upper lip means like don't show your emotion, which is ridiculous because you're watching people in emotional crisis. They've had the they've lost this part of their family and it's gone forever. And you're seeing them within moments of it happening. And to be stand there as a rock, you know, be a rock in this sea of chaos is insane because you have to be human in that moment. And it doesn't mean you break down with them and wail, but you have to. You have to say it's okay for them to have this emotional breakdown. And I, I, for me, I, I actually started training as a family liaison officer in the park system. And I went to this half-day training that was mainly uh, photocopied sheets and talking through protocol. And I'd already got most of the communication skills to deal with it. And I think two or three weeks later, I was out on a call for the death of a young person. And it was things just lined up because I'd worked. I'd, when I'd been with guiding groups, I'd had occasion where I had to go out to groups in remote settings and escort people out the back country because a parent had died or I had a, a situation where someone's sibling had uh, ended their life. And I had to go out and explain to their to the brother, to the sister, what had happened because the parents weren't available. So I'd, I'd had some exposure to it. And then my success in family liaison is probably in part based on the fact I have a really good practitioner understanding of what it's like to be out in winter conditions or be up on a mountain or be a climber or be on the river. I can, I can, break those things down to layman terms so it's understandable you aren't confused by a bunch of acronyms it's all communication and being honest there's definitely times where i've broken down with families because it's just really sad it's it's awful what's happened and then you 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 sort of pick yourself up and you've shared this moment and then you go back into your i call it uh ob objective compassion you 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 see where people are coming from you feel it and then you keep the process moving forward on an administrative level to either reunite the family with their loved ones possessions and body or move them to the next level of investigation at the coroner's office outside your jurisdiction it's there's a there's a pathway there and you'll help guide them along that pathway how do you prepare to give them this news? You do a lot of scripting. You you sit down. I sit down with the rangers or the whoever's doing the notification. If if I'm going to have somebody else do the notification, and we pull the notebook out and we write down what we're going to say, what the progression is going to be, and we practice it a little bit. And and then you go in and you. You, you tell the news that no mother wants to hear. And I always say mother because there's a noise that mums make when they realize they've lost a child that is, is out of this world. And I've heard it a lot. And it, it's this absolute wrenching noise. To all the people who do extreme, extreme sports, you know, be aware that if you had this accident, some people might say, well, you died doing what you love. And I'm like, ah, those last few seconds must have been terrifying. But no, your mom is probably going to make this noise. And it's it's this deep well of loss. It is this 
I mean, I'm kind of shaking as I say it, and I, I feel my hair rising on the back of my neck because it comes back to me. That if you, there's a there was a uh, there was a film called Masters of Rock or something, and it had Peter Croft in it, and he was talking about solo climbing, and he said if you if you're solo climbing for anybody but yourself, when you fall, you've had a terrible joke paid upon you, and it, there's that sort of instant cost for you as an individual. But there's this ripple of cost through your community and family that you you probably can't really gauge. And actually, that ripple, when it affects the parent, is a tsunami. It's so much greater. It crashes. The world crashes down. That's, that's a, it's a very difficult role to play in this search and rescue puzzle you were talking about before, this machine, this, this well-oiled machine that is Yosar. I mean, does it stay with you? Like, how do you how do you deal with it yourself? Oh, I went crazy. I I did like I want to say one summer, did seven or eight. With a very short amount of time, I did up seven or eight deaths, and they were a range of people dying in traumatic circumstances and getting, and then someone passing away because it was their time. You know, they're older and they just didn't wake up and. And I had this incident where I went to a function during a, during a search and somebody, I sort of turned up and they said, it was a board meeting for our nonprofit. And somebody said to me, are you okay? And I just burst into tears and I said, obviously not. And I walked away and, and I, I sort of stopped being family liaison for about a year. And it, what ends up happening is you, you're exposed to so much of other people's trauma there's a traumatic cost to you as well. And then over time, that magnifies into a point where you you may not have, it's ghosted into you. So your ability to deal with complexity or your ability to manage emotions starts to get worn away. And so the thing that's helped me a lot is something called the stress continuum, which the Responder Alliance in the US has been pushing very hard, particularly for ski patrollers and people in search and rescue. Uh, and it's uh, it's basically a, a little card that shows when you're ready through to being critically injured and it shows how emotionally, mentally, physically you're processing information. And so for me, I got to a point where I just couldn't deal with complexity. And by that, I mean, I would open the refrigerator and there would be lots of nice stuff to eat but I couldn't make a decision about what I wanted in a sandwich. So I would close the refrigerator, walk away and be hungry because I couldn't, I couldn't make a complex decision. And that's when you've got high degree of trauma. That's where you've got stuff that needs to be processed by professionals. And so we do a lot more work now on the squad in processing people's traumatic exposure. So we have this, this progression of checking in with people and making sure your community is aware of what's going on. And it's, it's, I'm in a much healthier place to deal with that level of impact. But we've all had trauma. Like I, I, all of us, it's, it's not a merit-based thing. Like your trauma is worse than my trauma. Tra I like that definition of trauma, which says trauma stops you living the life you want to live. And, and this, this, Stress continuum is a really good example of reminding you of when you're ready, when you're actually able to perform, 
what kept you in that position. So for me, if I get on the water in my boat, it resets my brain. And so last summer I had a pretty tough time stuff. It's sort of post COVID and dealing with some of the stuff we deal with. Uh, and my wife was like, you know, what makes you happy? And I was like being on the water. And at that moment I put my boat up on the, the car rack again and I drove to the river three times a week and I paddled. We all need that reset. That's the beauty of the outdoors is getting away from the blue light of the screen and getting away from media and getting away from Strava and getting away from collecting data, just losing yourself in those natural forces. Uh, it, it, it re-triggers maybe your circadian rhythms. I don't know, but it, it, it's a softer light. It's a, it's a, it's a softer world and it's, it's simpler. And that's, that's the key to that mental health piece is to make your life simpler. Can I ask you this? Uh, you, know, you know, that's what we talk about here on the Adventure Sports Podcast. We you like use your. It's not the sport itself; it's a medium to be out in the na- in nature. That's you know whether that's just walking around, sauntering as John Muir did, or if it's you know downhill skiing, a fourteener, you know whatever it is. Um, for you, what's causing this trauma is being out there. Things that are happening out there. Does it at all affect when you're out there to find peace? Because you know you're on the water somewhere that you may have recently found a body. For instance, is that? You know what I'm saying? Does it make the outdoor? Do you look at the outdoors differently, or do you look at Yosemite Valley differently? Oh yeah, I there, there's places I won't walk in Yosemite Valley. Like I won't go on a trail like the Mist Trail, which is one of the most popular trails. That yeah, heads up by Nevada and Vernal Falls, and with thousands of people on it doing things that people do in the outdoors. They like they get on the edge of stuff. They they do goofy pictures, and you just see you see hundreds of examples on a given day of people getting away with uh, uninformed decisions for want of a better word is they've, they've got out on the edge on something and for the most part they dodge it they don't slip off and so it's not news and yeah so i can't go to there's certain places where uh yeah you drive by them and i know i know why i don't go there anymore it's yeah, it's taken the shine off the place. There's a lot of, and but then I have a lot of colleagues who have done much more grisly stuff, and I use the word grisly, like picking up a body when it's come from a great height, it doesn't stay together. You're picking up parts of bodies uh, who reset and recharge themselves by going back out and getting on the granite and, and going up and down it. I, do, I don't, I mean, there's places I don't train, with people because of the because of some of the history in those areas and there's an inherent danger there but i take people to them and i talk about it and i actually there was a body there was a recovery that we did in a really public place in the valley and i i went back to that place and at low water i i sort of bumped and waded through where the person would have gone to try to understand the forces that were in there and what might have happened and that was illuminating to me on a professional level. But I also stood on the rock that, you know, we pulled that person out of the water on. And, and I remembered some of the emotions at that time. And it, everybody deals with it differently. But you, you're all feeling the impact. You're, you, you may say, oh, I'm fine. But then you look at people's 
use of substances or you look at their history around relationships or you look at how or what they do to reset their brains and it's more and more exposure more and more risk it's we all find different ways to deal with it yeah i'm sorry i don't mean to make it <laughs> it's kind of i mean it's depressing so and like i i had a i had a, a mission that went for months so i i was on an initial team i was family liaison i was in planning I was on the final recovery months and months later. It's this huge journey. It's a privilege to be on that journey because you're you're trying to solve it for the family and then you get lucky and the family gets the body of their loved one back. And, and can and, I ask this? It's it's for folks to know it's a long journey like that a lot of times because the water level in a certain yeah, river, just, is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, we went from... So you measure rivers, you can do it in like a marker on the side of the river, or you can do it in cubic feet per second. So you, the river might have been running at 5,000 cubic feet per second. When we actually got access to do a search, it was 11 cubic feet per second, and it was frozen. And that's so the difference between a summer incident and then actually finding conclusion in December. And our conclusion is not the conclusion. The conclusion for the family may never ever happen. And that's the other piece. When you when you say, when search and rescue teams say, oh, we're happy to bring the family closure or you, victims of crime closure, they haven't got closure. They've had this horrific thing happen. They're gonna be thinking about it for a long, long time. It's presumptive to think we've healed anybody. All we've done is we've, we've, we've helped to clarify what's happened and we've we've given them another step completed in that journey. Yeah, gosh, yeah, no, no, the, the, that's so unique when the water's so high, raging through the rapids. I remember John talking about that in his presentation. Is like, there's no way we if someone's pinned down there somewhere, we can't get them out. Like, there's nothing we could do. It's the forces of nature are too great. It's months before the water is much more manageable. And I just that blew my mind that knowing. Well, Near, near yeah, a bridge that people hike, there could be a body down there that the search and rescue knows, but no one else does. Right. And we, if once we know something's happened, you'll put people out on the trail and you'll be watching and there's regular patrols and you're watching bird behavior. And, and, and then once we have a really good clue, we might not be in the water. We might be coming vertically, so lowering down to try and pull that person's body out. But you have to use a lot of people and a lot of force. And I've actually turned up on scene where I've been ready to get in the water. And on big spring flow in the bottom of the valley, there's an area of class four rapids that are, are bigger rapids. You need to know what you're doing. And I feel pretty – I've done that section a lot. It's not an open section, but I've trained on that section. And I turned up one time ready to get in because we thought they'd gone in at the bridge. It was a happy aisle. And I was ready to swim it, and it's huge. And it – I feel pretty good about that. But then you talk some more and you realize that it's up the trail and it's class six water. So it's unpaddleable. Uh, although that's kind of open to question with the level that people are paddling now. But it's extremely consequential. You realize it's, not, it's, it's unsurvivable. And that person, I don't know, we found them like three months later. It's, but then it's like figuring out clues. You're, you're sitting there 
say, oh, we found this jacket and somebody smelt something and, oh, it could be in this location. And then you, you add all those pieces up and then suddenly you've narrowed your search area. And then, then somebody who's really experienced goes out and knows where to look and how to look. And it's right there. The body is right there in a view shed. No member of the public seen it, but the experienced searcher has spotted it. But then you, I mean, this is, you have all these sort of pieces that are, uh, that's really sad. And every so often you get a good one. Like I had a really good one last week. I had a fantastic tell, one. Tell last us about week. that. Tell us about a good so one. So <laughs> last week we had somebody who re was reported late after winter hike and they, uh, we put a lot of people on the ground who are really experienced and had a really defined search area. And this person made all the right decisions. They, they bivvied up when they realized they were a bit lost and they got up the next day and they started trekking their way out and the, and the hasty team found their track and then came up on them. And I got to ring a family up last week and say, I just, I'd actually just briefed them about what had happened. And I just, they picked up the phone again. I said, they're alive and we've got them was the first thing I said. And I haven't, I've said that, as I said, a handful of times and it all worked. It's, it's, we have 220 missions a year in Yosemite ish. We have 10 to 20 uh, fatalities a year. So we have a lot of missions that are twisted ankle, put them in a litter, roll them down the trail. They're super psyched. They might be a bit uncomfortable, but they're super psyched. They're not there anymore. And then there's some helicopter rescues and there's some quick emergency CPR happening. But so there's more good news there. The things that makes the news is the tragedy because we want to avoid that. We want to we want to find a way to mitigate, to find a way to have people make good decisions. That's awesome. And, and yeah, I, I'd love to ask more about that. I'm sorry. I don't feel like, I feel like we're going all over the place, but uh, <laughs> it, it's so interesting. I, I kind of don't even know where to start. You've got such a storied career. Do, do you have a story about potentially one of the most interesting or bizarre or, or just perplexing rescues you've ever had to deal with? Maybe, I... maybe that had a clear outcome or not. I, I we had it we had one where there was a incident on the north end of the park where a younger person like a, stu a student had walked away from their group and just disappeared and the group had looked for them and we they hadn't found them and they were right next to some, cl some pretty cliffed out area with a big lake and everything about it presented as bad news it was going to be water drowning cliff in the dark walk off inadequately prepared hypothermia all these things you you would i was just thinking this does not look good first 24 hours and as the investigators drilled down on it it turned out they'd been out a lot longer i think they'd been out maybe 12 hours or 24 hours longer than we thought and there was suspicion about why that was and it was probably drug use within the student group and they had been tentative in revealing that and so we're a little bit further behind. So this person's been out even longer and maybe they're tripping. Who knows what could have happened? And we're sitting there and they start to give the description of this young man and they have a photograph. And what they show is this sort of scraggly head, uh, feral child for want of a better word. And what, what he's wearing a sleeveless plaid shirt is the description. 
cut off jeans and he's wearing those five toed plastic shoes that were all the rage <laughs> a few years V-rooms, ago. Yeah. Yeah, viewers, and and like that's his outfit. That is what he's walked away from the group in. And there's this look on him. And I remember looking around at everybody else, and people started smiling. We're like, this guy's gonna make it. Like, there's just something about <laughs> this this total package that says, no matter what is thrown at me, I'm probably gonna come through this with a great story. And sure enough, I don't know. Twelve hours later, they found him. They were flying helicopter patterns, and they came over. And they spotted him and he was like totally psyched to see the helicopter and the helicopter touch that touches down and they're, they're down slope of, of him. I mean, he's up slope of them and he comes running down the hill, which is a very dangerous thing to do because the rotors are whipping around and they pile out helicopter and like, go back, don't run into the helicopter. The irony that he could have survived that and then run into the helicopter was not, you know, it was not uh, lost on me. And we heard we they got him, and we were pretty excited. And I, I made a decision that I wasn't going to say we actually had him until the helicopter was on the ground. And so we had to wait for them to fly back to base, and then they radioed in. But that kid, I, I hope he realizes he he did a really good he did a good job. I don't I still don't know quite why he wandered away from the group, but that's where it comes out, and you're all smiling, and you're pretty happy about it. It's good. Uh, not particularly wonder bizarre. where he is now. Well, yeah, I mean, he, I hope he kind of tells the story with a degree of humility. But if he doesn't, it's a good story and somebody may get something out of it. There are other ones that you have where somebody disappears and you, around water, if they can only go in one direction in water. They can't go upstream. You know the point of entry, they're going to go down. And you're, it's always amazing that you can do all these theories. It's going to be within the first 300 feet or this is what's going on. And so rarely do you actually know where they're going to turn up. And then they turn up draped over a log on the side of the river. And they may have been there for a few days before somebody noticed because they, they've become part of the environment. And then there's we've got two, I think, active in the park right now where people walked away or off trail. And we've got no sign of them. We've got nothing. We don't know. We know where they went on on the trailhead. We know where they took their backpack off. And there is zero other information, despite hundreds of hours on the ground looking for them. Has anything ever felt, any rescue that that felt intentional? No, I... I... I haven't dealt with anything like that. I, I've definitely dealt with things where you, you, you say, what just happened? And they explain all these pieces. But generally, again, that all of those pieces that, that, that you look at that may be bizarre, suddenly they all start falling into place because you hear about the person's emotional or mental state. You hear about uh, what they're dealing with. So if it's somebody who's planning to take their life, those things start to play, uh, fall into place. But no, most, I would say everything's, everything's pretty grounded. Like a disappearance is a disappearance. There are some laughable ones that you, like somebody who says, we had somebody with a spot device a few years ago when they first came out who starts to sort of message in or whatever. I don't know if it was spot, but they were messaging on something. They said, I'm having a heart attack and I am, you know, at this location. And 
it takes hours to respond and to get the flight plan, to get the crew up and to get that location. And so they're told to stay in position. And, you know, a little while later, now, so later we get another message and they say, I'm feeling better. I am at this location. And we're like, okay, do you need, do you need help? No, I'm good. And then an hour later, they, they come in, or a couple of hours later, they, they come in together and say they're having another heart attack. Actually, what they were experiencing was altitude. And w- what, they, what they'd experienced at altitude was heightened, heightened respiration rate, heightened uh, pulse. And then they went down and they felt better. And they were like, oh, I'm okay now. And they felt so much good. I'm going to go back up to altitude. And then you got altitude again. So that's the laughable part, point of it. Um, it's, yeah. The, the bizarre side of it, there's definitely things that are investigations that, pe- that the law enforcement are tied into that confuse them because there are odd things that happen. But we're out of that investigation piece. That search and rescue is response. What kind of trends have you seen over the the years? You know, c- pre-COVID, parks getting so much attention. You know, the, uh, people going, uh, middle of summer in Yosemite is a zoo. Um, pandemic happens, everything shuts down temporarily. Then, you know, just unexpectedly things pick back up, probably even more so. What, what kind of things have you noticed in the world of search and rescue, like trends? There's a lot more people using wild spaces. And learning how to use their equipment. <laughs> um, I think there's a bit of an accelerated, uh, unchaperoned apprenticeship that people are serving because they, they know that they don't want to be inside anymore and they want to go outside and do stuff. And with the nature of Instagram and self-promotion, your adventure isn't an adventure until it looks extreme. And so people are putting themselves increasingly in situations that are above their experience level so you you might have a really good canoe roll or you might be able to climb 510 a harder grade in the gym but being in class 5 water or being on a sea of granite on a remote peak is a very different undertaking so if, if you you might be able to do a single pitch at a higher grade in the safety and warmth of the gym but really you aren't equipped to do an easy 5-4 alpine route of 13 pitches because you don't understand about weather. You don't understand thunderstorms. You got out of camp late. You went out when it was sunny, and then you're shot halfway up the face when massive thunderheads roll straight over the back of the peak. And you're like, what do I do now? And I, I, I think that there's a – I hope that there's a reset around – apprenticeship and mentorship the idea that we look to peers or look to leaders to help refine our skills and help shepherd us through that that understanding our limitation phase and that i haven't seen that yet but i'm i hope for that like i I like the fact that outdoor retailers offer workshops on how to read a map over a gps that's great and i think it's great you can go out and learn some stuff but you, you also should be building your community to go and have your own adventure and have that adventure in your little adventure core uh, without the, the, the training wheels. So if somebody comes up here and they say, I'm really excited about doing a peak, then do a trail up a peak first. Don't do the open slab route. And I, I, there's sometimes that, there's that need for that, that picture. 
if you actually went through all your, I just realized if you went through all your first year of adventures without a single picture being taken, you're probably going to get a lot more out of it because you're never posing. And all your memories are getting processed within your head. It's like you don't have that distraction of performance. Do you find people uh, trying to take pictures and, I don't know, capture the moment when you're rescuing them? The ones that survive, of course. Uh, there have been some good videos in the last couple of years of people being taken off of El Cap and uh, a couple of other places by climbing partners. So in that moment, it's safe. They're on a big anchor. That's Yeah, people want to take some photographs. When you put in a litter and you're going to be run down a trail, the last thing on your mind is I want to take pictures because you're tied down in it. People's eyes get incredibly big because they have this, when you turn, when I turn up, what I used to turn up on carryouts, uh, and people are like, you want me to get in that? And you're like, yeah, this is how we get you down. They would, they'd be like, oh, actually my injury isn't as bad as I thought it were. I don't know what they thought they were going to get, whether it was, it was a golf cart or they were going to get a helicopter Just to come carried. up and do it. Yeah, you're going to be carried, but you're not just going to be carried. We're going to tie you down really tightly so you don't fall out. And then we're going to run down a rocky trail with you. And there's going to be tons of shouting. And we're just going to bust bust down the trail and get you out of here as quickly as possible. And it's terrible. It, I've been in letters when we've been on trainings. And it's you are not in control. And it's you either have to be genuinely injured on a lot of pain meds and, and just slip to silence. Or you have these stilted conversations because you kind of want to hear that you're going to be safe and that happens. We, we put somebody on the head and they talk to them. Or there are people who are just terrified the whole way down. The suit they use on the helicopter is called the screamer suit. And they, they buckle you in so you can't really move. And then you get hooked in on the harness and you get taken away. And I would be, yeah, I, I do not like edges. Like if, if I get rung up to do anything that's technical with ropes and pullers, I make sure I'm going to manage that anchor and I'm going to be really good at that prusuk and I'm, I'm on it, but I don't never put me off the edge. Years ago, there was a massive El Cap rescue and I got rung up to go up in the helicopter to go up top. And I was like, do you know who you phoned up? And they were like, yeah, it's you. And I was like, you must have asked everybody. You, you must have everybody who is available up there already. If you're asking me to get in a helicopter, to go up and be part of a rigging thing. And they said, we have asked everybody. And I was so relieved when I turned up because they managed to get hold of five, four or five old timers, like Dan McDivitt, Pete Takeda, and a couple of others. And it was this roll call of, of, of incredible climbers who'd come out to help the community on this massive rescue. And I, I was so relieved to walk out in my flight suit and realize I could take it off and not have to go up there. Same, the same actually in, in Wales. I was on a mountain rescue in Wales where it was horrible weather and they fly these big, uh, I think the Wessex helicopters, they're big, big heavy-duty helicopters and that you have to put your climbing harness on to get on and there's space for one of the mountain rescue crew to go up to do this response. And I looked around and realized everybody in the group, there was probably five or six of us, all of us were very slowly putting our harnesses on. We we're putting them fast enough on to look like we were responding, but not so fast that we would finish first. And this one guy finished first and bang, they grabbed him and got him on the helicopter. And all of us breathed a collective sigh of relief. 
that we did not need to be the hero in that moment. Because it's it's those those people who are flying those pieces. Uh, those the helicopter pilots are extraordinary. The helicopter crews are extraordinary. They they're a very tight group. They're in this machine that has so many things that could go wrong. They pull off extraordinary things, and people take it for granted, and they don't realize how many calculation calculations of risk are being made on their benefit. So it, it better be a genuine rescue. If you can stumble out on your ankle and not put four or five people at risk in the helicopter, that's a good thing. But as soon as you get a helicopter involved, there's a lot of people at risk. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be real. Wow. So, so speaking of which, you know, ha- be- being on this side of the equation for so long, what what is something you really want or wish the public would know when going to Yosemite, going to some of these places? Obviously, you know, there, there's basic things, but is there anything that, that maybe gets overlooked a little bit? Yeah, I, I think the first thing I would say is the first part of any redundancy and safety is yourself. So make sure you have water, make sure you have snacks, make sure you have something for a rainy day, make sure all those pieces, the very first thing is you don't look for somebody else to help you. Can you help yourself? And then your, your second piece of redundancy is, to, is a friend. And they, it's either telling somebody where you're going really clearly and not changing your plan or having somebody else out in the field with you that you, you've come up with the way you're going to manage risk out there. And so the most conservative, the safest option will always win. You don't need to argue about it. You set that up before you leave the trailhead. And then the third part of redundancy is the people who are sort of away, again, who know what you're doing, like at home or on the telephone, they know they're going to get a text. So, so the very outer circle is actually the responders. They're almost the last people you call. And so that redundancy inside is, is do you know how to tape an ankle that's been twisted really badly? Go and do a wilderness first responder course. Do you know how to use your GPS unit? And then when that doesn't work, do you know how to read a map? as a group that's another piece of redundancy it's you can do so much on a basic level to actually enrich your experience because you're becoming self-reliant and self-reliance is the piece at which you start really pushing out and risking more because you're making it as a calculated gesture based on your on your experience level that's 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 a really good place to be if you're if you have, they had a, there was an American Express, or there's a credit card at some point that had a guaranteed rescue around the world. And we had a spade of phone calls that would come off the top of Half Dome where people would be like, I would like to be rescued now. And they would ring up dispatch and say, can you take the helicopter up there for this guaranteed rescue? And we would say, well, it's, it doesn't work like that. That's for emergencies. This is not an emergency. This is just somebody who's tired who's exercising their worldwide rescue privilege and they have to go back down. There's no reason to land a helicopter up there. That's presumptive of somebody else bailing you out. And and I think the final part of it is when you need help or you see people struggling, offer help and accept help. I, I think we're, we're, 
it's easy uh, in the in the in the city and urban environment. You'll see people threaten violence, and it's scary. And I get it. I understand that piece. In the backcountry, when somebody's hurting, put your own ascent on hold to go and help somebody else. The reward is so much greater. Hmm. Uh, you know, maybe someone's never really thought about doing this before who who enjoys the outdoors but maybe looking for maybe a little more purpose or a greater reward like you were talking about how do you get involved in this if you're not you know careered like you are if you're just wanting to enter it now i think uh build up a personal resume of of basic skills um being able to look after yourself in the outdoors go and volunteer and get trained by your local search and rescue group Go out and do a longer training thing if you can afford it with somebody like National Outdoor Leadership School or Outward Bound. Look around in the community, in the ski community, uh, somebody who works within National Ski Patrol and, and ask them to mentor you. And I think quite often it's there's a lot of exclusion in the outdoor world because of money, because of the financial pieces and culturally pieces. And I think we have a duty to diversify our constituent group in a welcoming manner and if, if the barrier the barrier should not be gear the barrier should not be access to equipment and so all of us who are in the outdoors if you go in our storage area we have multiple bits of climbing gear we have multiple sets of skis we have uh, they have multiple boats consider whether you need all that stuff and donate it to groups like Big City Mountaineers or your scouting group or the youth hostel, Boys and Girls Club. So they have the equipment to have people start to have their own adventure. We're, we, the irony is that we have moved to a minimalist idea in the, in the outdoors, less weight, smaller tents, uh, more expense with that. And I like the idea of being a big tent place where we have room for everybody. And I, I, I think that the the landscape needs people to advocate for it, and it, it needs it from every part of this country. In the same way that all of the different nationalities and all the different countries and all the different groups, they should have a place in the outdoors because we're all looking at the same sunset. We're all appreciating it in different ways, but we're looking at the same thing, and we're all warmed by that. We're all warmed by that. That's that's the way we should. I would encourage everybody to think about what is your legacy? Your legacy shouldn't be a bunch of Instagram pictures. It should be the way you've directly opened the door for somebody else to walk in. Oh, so, so Moose, tell, tell us about your most uh, recent book, When Accidents Happen. Like what, what, what should folks expect reading that? And also tell us a little bit about what you do at Nature, uh, Nature Bridge. So I've got a couple of books out. When Accidents Happen is a book that looks at crisis communication. And it's set up for people who want to be involved in family liaison. And it's, a, it's one approach to doing a complex job. So it's the idea that this is a skeleton of ideas and approaches. And then you can inhabit it with your style or what your jurisdiction or your organization needs. And then I have a second book out that came out a couple of weeks ago called Searching. And that book is just looking at search and rescue missions. And it's not about high visibility, high adventure ones. It's about the run of the mill exercise that we go out on. And it's everything from 
me diving to do a recovering a bear's telemetry collar on a drowned bear in the river through to dealing with being part of a negotiation team for somebody who's trying to end their life. And it's looking at the overall impact of exposure to that level of, of trauma. And at, at Nature Bridge, which is my primary job and the senior project director, and my, my main purpose for the last 17 years has been building a permanent home for education for young people in Yosemite National Park. And it's a, we're building a 224-bed environmental science campus that uh, will work with the U University of California, Merced, and other organizations to make sure that young people have affordable options to come and recreate and learn in one of the iconic national parks in the country. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. I, I remember uh, wanting to work for Nature Bridge while I was there, but m moving away from the valley. So it's so cool to see that it's growing and the bridge is, the bridge is widening. You know, yeah, we, we and we serve pre COVID, we were serving uh 30,000 student, students a year, and we'll we'll be getting back there. We've got three or four locations around the country, and it, and every every park has some sort of education program. And it's it's they they're not necessarily affiliated with Nature Bridge, but they have value and they have purpose. And I think it's a really good place to consider donating money or time again because post COVID. The people who are going to have less options and less access are people who are in underserved communities. And so mm. we need to, again, keep the door open to allow them to have that pivotal experience early. Mm. Man, Moose, this is awesome. Um, thank you for telling some stories. Uh, and, uh, it was like a river, you know, and it didn't necessarily know where it would go, but I, I appreciate you just riffing with me and telling so, some of this and, um, yeah, getting a little more awareness out there for sure. It, it was, uh, a lot of people are itching to be outside, especially after, um, COVID or during COVID. So it's, it's, I'm sure you are seeing a lot. So thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I just want to encourage people to go out there and make sure you come back to tell your story and not be the story. Yes. Yes, well, cut cut off flannel, jean shorts, whatever you got to do to make it more epic. <laughs> Just watch out for the rotors. Watch out for the rotors. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Moose. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast link is in the show notes and also if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure so if you know someone please reach out email us at info at adventure sports and until then get out there and have some fun